Well, how was everyone's week? That seems sort of flat. Uh, how was your week? Yeah, yeah, you're sucking it up. It was terrible, Carrie, but I'm going to say it was all right. Well, I want you to know I had a really great week. I uh, every now and then get the opportunity to work remotely back in the Midwest, and so I took a plane ride and uh, got back late last night. There's something good about just enjoying real autumn season with leaves and walking fields and being with family. Some of you know I'm from a large grain farm, my family farms, and so I was able just to clear my head space. And I needed to clear my head space for what we're talking about today. And so I want to pray, and then we're going to step into it. Jesus, you are here. You are here to encourage us. You are here to be worshipped. Lord Jesus, through your spirit, you are here to rightly divide your word to speak into our hearts. Lord, each of us come from different paths in life, each of us our own different journeys. But Lord, we know that through your spirit, you apply your word directly to where each one of us are at and what's going on in our world. And I pray today, this morning especially, Jesus, that you would rightly apply your word to that particular place in our heart for our own life or maybe apply it into our heart for us to help a friend or a family member. In your name, amen. So we continue our series today on money, sex, and power, sacred gifts, or toxic idols. And we were going to move on to power uh, this week, but the problem was God said, I need you to just pause and spend another week on um, a subject matter. And I mentioned to you who were here last week what that subject matter was, but uh, as I've endeared myself to it, it's really grown uh, to really understand that it's not about the subject itself or the issue itself. It's about people. And when it's about people, it's about uh, God's work in the lives of people. And so we are going to spend a little bit of time today looking into God's Word and what God would say to all of us um, concerning the subject of sexuality as it relates to sexual orientation and gender identity. These are subject matters that are becoming much more prominent in our culture. In fact, I uh, this week did a history of the movement of the whole sexual orientation and the development of uh, the LBGT, if we want to use that kind of acrostic. And I realized that in my lifetime, in my lifetime, there has been a sea change of thinking. A sea change of thinking and perspective and education and understanding. There's also been a, uh, a, a momentous pushback, a wave, if you will, against the tides of culture and some of the teachings that are going on as it relates to these subjects. And you may have different kinds of opinions that uh, uh, settle in on this subject. You may have different kinds of relationships that uh, you have with other people. You may be seated here this morning and you're uh, dialed into these areas because it's front and center in your own life. And I want you to know we are not here to come and just uh, throw back any tidal wave against anything. We are here to be refreshed by God's Word and an understanding of these uh, sensitive and yet prominent subjects in our world. I've simply titled today, Gospel Hope Amidst Cultural Confusion. Gospel Hope Amidst Cultural Confusion. If I was to ask you, parents, if you were here today, what are they teaching in the school systems concerning sexual orientation and gender identity, would you have an answer? Do you know what's being taught? I don't fully know what's being taught, but I do know that in the state of California is other place. In fact, a couple years ago, the Washington Post made mention that California was one of the laboratories of experimentation, if you will, of education related to the subject of sexual orientation and gender identity. And so it was um, a prominent kind of movement that happened in our own educational systems a few years ago. I think the, uh, the uh, bill was AB 329. Does that sound familiar to any of you? And it has to do with what's called the California Healthy Youth Act. And in that, it's saying that it requires comprehensive sexual education and HIV intervention prevention education to be provided to students at least once in the middle school and once in the high school beginning in grade 7. 
And there's a lot of valuable things, of course, that are unpacked and taught in that. But one of the bullet items is information about sexual orientation and gender, including the harm of negative stereotypes. I read just this last week. Some of you may be familiar with the uh, journalist, talk show host, uh, um, newscaster, uh, Megan Kelly. And she said she found out that from her school, where she's at on the East Coast, that they were teaching third grade, she has a third grade boy, third grade boys about puberty blockers. And so that they, when they turned 18, that they could change their uh, um, gender um, with corrective kind of surgery. And you're going like, what? That's being taught? Well, yes, it's being taught in some places, and we can, we can all get uh, uh, righteous indignation if you're on that side of the camp and say, hey, you can't do that. You push back. Parents need to have control. There's uh, stories about parents who have uh, lost actual custody of their kids because they started wanting to be referred to by a different gender uh, uh, name in school, and there was pushback because the parents didn't know that. And then they pushed back on the parents and said, well, wait a second, maybe they need to be relocated. There's a lot of wrestling and turmoil, and I'm not going to park there and describe a lot of it other than you know it, you hear about it, you maybe uh, are sensing that in your own life and some of the challenges related to sexual orientation or even gender identity. And what I want to say to you is our hearts need to be together on this as a body of people. As Christ followers and even seekers of God, if you're one here today who is outside the Christian faith and just sort of checking God out or or maybe even watching online. Because there's something amidst that's happening in our culture that is concerning. And it's concerning not because of the agenda, the political agenda or the issue or the bantering on it. It's concerning because it's involving individual lives. Precious lives. Maybe a relative of yours, maybe a friend, maybe a co-worker. Where do you go on all this? How do you discuss the subject? You see, the reason a pastor won't stand in front of you and speak on this subject is because there's a little bit of a, a shunning, to some degree a shaming, to even talk about it. Like, step back, who are you? Who are you to, to be an expert on something like this and what's going on in the hearts and lives of people? But friends, God is the one who calls us to step forward and to be able to have reasoned, compassionate, encouraging, truth-instructing kinds of conversations. And we should not be shrinking back. We should step forward. It was the um, great uh, Protestant reformer, Martin Luther King. I mean, Martin Luther, sorry, not Martin Luther King. Martin Luther who said this, I love this quote. It was encouraging for me this week when I came across it. If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady... On all the battlefields, besides, is merely flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. You hear what he's saying? He said this a number of years ago. That we as Christians can be on the battlefield in all different kinds of ways, but the one battlefield that maybe is most intense and that the adversary is attacking the most directly, if we shrink back from that battlefield and we flinch, then we are not the soldiers in God's kingdom that we need to be. And so let's step forward in this. Let's have compassion. Let's have understanding. Let's open our own lives up. I've had to open my own self up a lot in the last couple of weeks to say, Lord, teach me, instruct me, convict me of my sin. Show me where I'm wrong. Show me where I've erred. Show me where I've maybe been dogmatic, where I've been cruel in my thinking. God, teach me, show me, and then enable me, use me to be able to be your vessel of encouragement into a world, into a culture, and with these individuals, with friends of yours and mine, or maybe yourself and your own struggles, so that we can find a way forward in this day and age, because I think ultimately behind it all, it really is the adversary who wants to still kill and destroy anyone who is made in the image of God. It's in Colossians 4, 
chapter 2, that I want to first take us because it says this, devote yourselves then to prayer. Be watchful. All that's going on. And thankful. And pray also too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in change. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise. In the way that you act towards outsiders, make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations, though, be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So that's my hope. That we would take the opportunity to pray and be watchful, to look what's going on in our culture around us, people that we love and care for, that we would be thankful, that we would pray, we would intercede, that we would bring forth the truth of God and understand that we are to be instruments of His to communicate and to share and to encourage. And as we do so, we need to uphold truth, but we also need to be well seasoned with grace and mercy and understanding. And friends, just to be honest, that's not how Christians are perceived on these subjects. Judgmental. Dogmatic. Negative. Ostracizing. Divisive. Insensitive. May I call us forward to understand what the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches. And may we as a people be those instruments of God's mercy and God's grace. I want to walk you through 10 truths concerning God's word today for us to be able to be mindful of those kinds of conversations. Conversations maybe with ourselves as God is working in these areas of your own life and you're wrestling with them. Conversations with others. You know, we have uh, given the backdrop of this series from Romans 1 where we talked about what happened in Romans 1. Paul lays it out to his culture that day, 2,000 years ago, that uh, they exchanged the glory of God for images made to look like. And the images may change over from one generation to another, but what it is, it's an exchanging of the glory of God for images and other kinds of pursuits. And he says, you can't go there. Be wise into that. But he says this is what culture has done. And then he said that God gave them over. And God gave them over specifically in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of body, their bodies with one another. Men committed indecent acts with one another. Uh, women exchanged natural relations. And it, it just unpacks it there. And you go, whoa, that's heavy. And you know, it's one of the passages that, that we as believers go to and say, see what God says about all this. But it's not just specifically on these areas that we're talking about today. It's all areas that can become idols and exchanging the glory of God for. But before that passage of Romans 1 where he begins to articulate how the culture is, the confusion of his culture was just as nasty as the confusion of our culture. Before that, it says in verse 16 of chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation to all those who believe. And then it lists different kinds of people. He's positioning the gospel as the answer, the hope, to the cultural decadence and demise that was around him. So also today, when we discuss the subject at hand, we need to understand the hope we have in the gospel. And the gospel simply is good news. Good news. You're carrying good news. I'm carrying good news. The good news comes from God's word. And the good news is that there is hope. Wherever you're at, whatever your position, wherever you're at even this morning, and these subject matters may not even relate to you this morning. You're dealing with something else. The hope of the gospel is there. It's the power of God for the salvation, the freedom to all those who believe. So we're going to take God's word and the hope that we have in the gospel, the good news, which is the good news of what Jesus Christ did. When he came, he died, he rose from the grave. He brought about the ability for us to be not only freed from the penalty of sin, but freed from the power of sin. This is the good news and to live a life that he's called us to live in his fullness. 
So the gospel truths from Scripture are going to direct us today. And so we're going to walk one truth through at a time. And I lean heavily upon David Platt, who is a pastor at McLean Bible Church in Washington, D.C. He's a very vibrant person. When I came across how he unpacked some of this a few weeks ago, it, it gave me release to say, that's a great way forward. A great way forward. So here's number one. You ready? And, and if you don't have time to write these down, you're going like, wow, there's, there's, there's quite a few you're going to go through. I'm going to go through ten. You're going to go through 10. We're going to be here forever. We're going to move quickly. But in moving through these each quickly, they're each pungent and they're each important points from God's truth concerning the confusion, the sexual orientation and gender identity confusion that's going on in our culture today. Number one is this. God's word teaches us. God's word teaches us that every one of our bodies is wonderfully made by God. That's where you need to begin. God's Word teaches that every one of our bodies is wonderfully made by God. How many of you recall when you first saw the body of your child? We have been blessed in our family to have four children. And every time we first held the body of that child, we're like, whoa, I mean, you could have had ultrasounds, you could have had pictures, other kinds of things maybe that sort of gave, but when you finally held the body of that baby boy or that baby girl, what were your thoughts? Were your thoughts was, man, that's all messed up. No, your thoughts were, what's, it's so beautiful, look at this baby. And, and even if there's maybe a little bit of a deformity or something, and some of you know our son Levi was born with Down syndrome, so he had an extra chromosome on number 21, and we finally found out. It was like, no, it's precious. Precious is every body that God creates for the spirit of the soul of an individual. And I don't know about you, but man, when I, I looked in my baby's there. They were cute. They're beautiful. They're more beautiful than yours. So, now you all think everybody's you know, beautiful, right? Well, Scripture teaches this quite clearly, doesn't it? In Psalm 139, for you created God my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Oh, the mystery of God. The mystery of God, but friends, foremostly in our conversations, in our thinking, in our biblical foundations for understanding the context by which we need to approach this sensitive subject, is that the Bible teaches that every one of our bodies is wonderfully made by God in its own uniqueness and its own design. Number two is every one of our bodies is ultimately created for God. Friends, this is probably, I don't want to say it's the biggest of the ten, but boy, it's up there this morning of the truth. Our bodies, as they were created by God, were created ultimately for Him. You see, the subject matter that's in the mainstream, whether it's gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, is, is that you've got to be true to yourself. I, I have these feelings and these leanings, and I don't have interest there, but I have interest there. And so the whole conversation... Even our conversation as we interact with subject matters can be very myopic, focused on ourselves. You got to be true to yourself. What's true for you 
true for you. Just got to be true to me. I'm going to do me, you do you. So leave me alone, right? That's sort of the mindset around there, around the discussions. But the reality is we have to at least ask ourselves some other questions. And they're these. What if we are not at the center of the universe and everything doesn't evolve around us? What if God is at the center and everything revolves around him? Now, in our discussion this morning, this may be where you get off the train. Because you don't like those questions. And those questions don't reflect where you want to go. So you want to get off the train of this discussion and get on another train of discussion. But I would beg you, even if you're challenged amidst of this, that you pause here and at least ask yourself the question, what if that's true? What if we're not at the center of the universe? What if God's at the center of the universe and everything evolves around him? And you can jump off that train and you can get on another train and, and go that route. But I, I don't know where it'll ultimately take you. It was interesting, you know, this week um, I did the red eye last Sunday night, you know, to fly the Midwest. And I took Levi with me. And Levi's not the, 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 the fastest kid in an airport, right? And we're running a little bit late, get dropped off at LAX for this red eye to Indiana. And uh, I say thank you very much, uh, and uh, Zach, for dropping us off. And, and uh, we ran in. I know we're short on time, and I'm trying to find the gate. I look at my thing. It says gate 131. 131, I said, a little bit strange to me. I look, and I see the sign for the Delta. It says uh, gates 131 and Terminal B. Well, some of you know what that is. It's like the International Terminal. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. you got to go down some steps. You got to get on a shuttle and you got to wait for the shuttle, get on the shuttle. And then the shuttle is like it was driving to Indiana for all I knew. And it was like taking forever to get there. I get there. I walk in the door and somebody says to me, he said, well, let's hurry. It's up through there. You go up the ramp to turn there, you know, hurry. And I'm like, I am going to hurry. Come on, Levi, let's go. And we ran, we're sweating. We're pulling our, you know, baggage along and we're trying to get there. Where's the gate at? Where's the gate at? And we finally get to gate 131. I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't want to miss my plane. And lo and behold, gate 31, the doors had been closed and there were two guys banging on it, but above it, it said El Salvador, <laughs> San Salvador. And I said, this doesn't seem right. And, and come to find out, I was like, no, their gate had got moved and they were going to Boston, but they got switched and they were upset because they missed their flight. I asked the guy, I said, 131. He said, yeah, it must be the next flight. And I'm like, there's nobody sitting around here. This is weird. I said, are you sure? They said, what's the flight number? I said, oh, sir, that gate has been changed to B23. B23. B-23 back in, yeah, back in the Terminal 2 building, right? So we had to go run all the way back down. I come on, Levi, let's get here. We get down at the shuttle guy. I told the shuttle guy, hurry, I'm going to be late. He said, well, our first thing is to get there safe. I said, I know that. My first thing, though, is get out of this terminal for tonight. And so we get back there. We run back up the stairs. There we are. I'm at the same place that I was a half an hour before. And my gate's right next to it. They're already loading. I'm like, I'm, I, look, I look on my, lo and behold, it, it uploaded. It changes. Oh, yeah, it's been moved to B-23. And I said, you're loading, you're loading a sky zone. I'm like, sky zone? I don't load no sky zone. I get up there. I check in. It goes ding. They said, sir, you've been upgraded to first class. I said, well, thank you very much. <laughs> it still doesn't make up for that wrong way to it. If I took all the way around LAX, right? But I was back in the right spot, but I took the first class. I haven't flown first class for years. That was beautiful. Me and Levi right there. We lived the high life. But I'm sweating. Because I'm out of shape. I'm sorry. I'm breathing heavy. And I'm like, that's just nuts that they sent me all the way there and all the way back dragging my teenage son, my 22-year-old son, actually. And I'm like, you know, that's sort of the way life is a lot of times, isn't it? We're in a hurry, and it's telling us, point your direction. You go this direction. This is the way that, to get on the flight that you need that's going to get you where you want to go. And we get there, and it's not loading there. And then we get back, and we realize, oh, it's right back where it always was, 
right back where it always was. G.K. Chesterton wrote a book called Orthodoxy. It talked about his journey of coming to know God from England. And he said it was like getting on a ship sailing for the new country of America and getting caught in a storm. And then finally, through the midst of the storm, seeing land ashore, and you land ashore thinking you're in a new promised land, only to find out that you're back home where you were. I see a lot of craziness in our culture, sending people all different kinds of directions. We need to come back home to what God's purpose was when he created male and female. And when God created us as human beings in his likeness, all the crazies, all the crazies. We have to ask ourselves this question, are we at the center of the universe or God? What if God knows better than we do what is best for our bodies? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. This whole subject matter of sexual orientation and gender identity, it's by far not the most offensive Christian teaching in the Bible. That's the most offensive teaching right there. That in the beginning was God. It's not about you. Oh. Oh. I don't know in your conversations or maybe if you're in that journey in your own life right now, if you can get to this area of the truth that's being positioned here in truth number two, but every one of our bodies is ultimately created for God. It's not for mostly created for yourself. And when he formed the intricate, wonderful, fearful body in the womb, he designed it exactly as it was meant to be. There can be an awful lot of hormonal adaptations in people's lives. There can be a lot of um, reassignment surgeries. But in any of it, you're not going to change the simple fact that at the chromosome level, and trust me, when you got a child that has an extra chromosome, you're very sensitive to this. Can it be changed? Three chromosomes on number 21? Can we somehow get one of those off? No. In a fallen world, but by God's sovereignty, that's how he designed our child with Down syndrome. You either have an XX chromosome or an XY chromosome. Designed by God. For God. You were created male and female for his glory, for his purposes. Number three truth is this. Every one of our bodies is supernaturally designed then by God to be satisfied in God. What does that mean? It says this in Psalm 63, verse 3, because your love is better than life, the psalmist is crying out to God. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied. As with the richest of foods, the singing my lips, with singing lips, my mouth will praise you. In 1 Corinthians 6.13, the body, however, and David gave reference to this last week in the talk he so greatly gave, is meant, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord, for the body. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Every one of our bodies, this precious body, is supernaturally designed, supernaturally designed by God, to be satisfied in God. And so all this searching, all this going out different paths and being sent down different roads and, and whatever it may be, we have to come back to realize, could it be 
that God, who fearfully and wonderfully made me, specifically designing my body as the way it was to be, that it would only make sense that it can fully be satisfied in God and pursuing Him and not pursuing my own self-interest. And it's not just with the subject we're at. All of us are in this camp. That we need to understand that our bodies need to be satisfied, not in our own thinking, but satisfied in God. Number four, God's Word teaches us that every one of our bodies is sexually defined by God for our good and for the gospel. He designed them. He designed them specifically for our good, not for our bad. It's like, I'm going to stick you in the wrong body. No, he had a design for why he gave us that body, even if we don't like the body. And it may not have to do with sexual orientation and gender identity. It maybe has to do with the way you look. Maybe your ethnicity. All other kinds of things that start to, to come at us like, why am I the way I am? I don't even want to think about that, you know? I stood up here today to a sound check, and I'm like, man, I got white hair. It just sort of shines off the lights. I wish I didn't have so much white hair. I mean, what if I had dark hair? I think I'd look younger and that kind of thing. But I got white hair. I started getting a white skunk going across the front of my, my uh, hair really early on in life. Do I push back on that or say, well, God, silver's not bad. So my wife tells me. I'm glad she likes it. But what is it about the design that you have that you think is not good? God defined your bodies and He defined your sexuality chromosomally for a purpose. And that purpose defined by God is for our good ultimately and it's for the gospel. Genesis 1.27, God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. So if we're going to stay on the train that God's at the center of the universe and we're not, then let's go back to understanding our sexuality and our gender related to how he chose to put us into this world. And putting us into this world, male and female, we together reflect the glory of God. You, you know, he didn't have to do it this way. You ever think about that? Why did he create male and female? Why didn't he create three or four? Or why wasn't it just one, an asexual being? He didn't have to do that. He did this for a reason. You go underneath the surface, and it's for our good. It's for our pleasures, for our companionship. The complementarian uh, discussion is all involved in that. But it's also for his glory and for the gospel. That's why in Ephesians 5, it says this, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. God, in his design, he said, you know, I'm going to make them male and female, and the two are going to become one. And then Paul, later on all these years, he says this in Ephesians, the two becoming one, it's like Christ... And his body, the church, the followers of Christ, and the two shall be one. And so marriage, the coming together of male and female, is reflective of what God's doing in his greater glory of him having Christ as the bridegroom and us as his bride who are followers of him. And one of these days, we will be together in the presence of Christ. You know, I go back, when I have these kinds of trips, I go back and I reminisce a lot, right? I stay in the very farmhouse where I was raised, my mom and my dad, and I walk into their bedroom, and right there is a picture of mom and dad still on the mantle because they haven't transitioned with the house yet any. And it's their 50th wedding anniversary, and I thought, wow, I used to think that was a really old, long time ago. And I think I'm getting closer to that than when I first got married. And But I'm thinking, my mom and my dad when I'm in the farmhouse they are now in the presence of Jesus they are experienced the culmination of that which their faith called them to in this life and though they were married to one another in life both of them as uh, followers of Jesus were a part of the bride of Christ and will all be gathered in a culminating event someday there's big stuff going on here 
Not this myopic, well, this is the way I feel. This is what I want to do. This is what gives me pleasure. This is what gives me meaning. And, and well, just step back. We need to be satisfied with our bodies as God intended them to be, but also for His glory and for the gospel. And there's something to be said about protecting the sacredness of that, especially as it relates in marriage. You want to showcase the beauty of God's love and the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ? Then what you need to be able to do is open the door of your home and say, look at my marriage. My marriage reflects God's love for us as people as the husband and wife express their love and their mutual enjoyment in the physical intimacy act before God. It's sacred. Let's not easily discard it for some wayward journey to another terminal that's not taking off to anywhere. God's Word teaches us, number five, we are all prone to sexual confusion, deviation, and rebellion against God. Oh, now you're going below the, the water surface, Carrie. Yeah. There's something much deeper in this whole discussion, and the discussion involves all of us. Because we are all prone. We are all prone to sexual confusion, deviation, and rebellion against God. The argument that God made me this way doesn't really ultimately hold because God didn't make you a certain way. There was a desire you're prone to a desire that moves you away from God's plan and moves us into confusion deviation and rebellion against God and it's just not the other people it's all of us if I look into my own heart I realize there's proneness to confusion deviation rebellion some not even defilement as it relates to to the sexuality of my life. And that is a very sobering thought to me. You know, we want to pull the speck out of someone else's eye, and we've got a big old plank sticking out of our eye, Scripture says. So let's just all step back and own this truth from Scripture, that we're all prone in whatever way. Genesis 3.1 says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals. And the Lord God, that the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, Satan did, did God really say, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? You see, that's the proneness. That's what happens. God made us beautifully, fearfully, wonderfully made this way for him to be satisfied in him. To give glory to him for our own good and for the sake of the gospel. And then something came in the middle of it all. And yeah, though it was Satan and the serpent to begin with, it's the sinful nature that we carry with us, all of us having been born into a sinful nature. And the sinful nature says, me, 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 my, my, my. Not God, God. And the sinful nature says, did God really say that? Did God really say that? I see a lot of gymnastics done, even by good, good Christian people trying to take the Word of God and say, well, did God really say that concerning sexual orientation and even gender identity issues? God really say that? And in one sense, it's all right to ask the questions. It's, it's okay to ask questions of God. But then the suspicion comes in that your thinking is better than the way Scripture was laid out to be. Or that the morals of our culture today are fluid. 
because, well, guess what? We're living a democracy, so don't we get to pick our morals? No, we don't get to pick our morals because morals come from a moral law, and moral law comes from a moral law giver, and the moral law giver has outlined certain things, not just, you know, because he's God, but because he knows how it works best. You can go on that journey and go to the wrong terminal if you want, but God says, here's where it's at. And so we don't get to pick and choose in our culture what morality is. But yet I see a lot of times that, that, that search for Scripture, trying to rewire Scripture. Well, I didn't quite say this, or Jesus, did he really directly address that or not? If you just take the word at face value, it does. Did God really say that? G.K. Chesterton is one of my favorite quotes. Some of you may have heard me say this before. I mentioned him earlier about his uh, journey in orthodoxy. But G.K. Chesterton said this, There are many angles at which you can fall, but only one angle at which you can stand straight. The reason I like this quote is because it's so convicting to me. It's so convicting to me, but it's also helpful to me as a pastor. I've seen a lot of angles at which people have fallen. I don't know that there's too many more out there that I haven't heard of or haven't tried to encourage and shepherd and, and uh, challenge someone through. Really don't care at what angle you fall. There's only one angle at which you can stand straight, and that's in Christ and who He's called you to be. And so you take all the counterfeits, all the errors, and you say, how do we stand straight in Christ but then we come circle back around to ourselves with this truth that I've mentioned. We all are prone to sexual confusion, deviation, and rebellion against God. We can't, can't say, well, God made me this way as it relates to uh, some sexual uh, orientation or a gender identity because the reality behind all the sexual confusion and deviation is we're all created that way. We weren't originally created that way, but we fell. And so we're born into this world. We all, we all. And you pick and choose. There's sins for you or directions and pathways for you that may be different from someone else, a different kind of angle at which you fall. Each of us have different kinds of enticements. You know, I empathize a lot with, with people that have fallen some of the same ways that I've fallen because like, oh man, I've been there. Then there's other ways that people fall that I don't quite have a read on because that wasn't, you know, like alcohol is not a thing for me, all right? So the idea of abusing uh, a chemical substance of alcohol, it's just nowhere. I'm like, okay. But that doesn't mean that I'm not sensitive to someone who has fallen into that addictive behavior you pick the way in which an angle in which you fall it's all underneath the same category scripture says we've all sinned we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of god and that's what number six is we're all guilty we're all guilty of sexual sin and we're separated from god no matter what angle that you've fallen at maybe you've been promiscuous maybe you're in an affair right now and nobody knows about it. Maybe you're, you know, engrossed in uh, the internet, searching places you shouldn't search. What, what is it that you've fallen? Which way? Doesn't matter for God. It's all deviation. It's all confusion. It's all rebellion. We have all sinned sexually, even if it's just with our thought life. Jesus taught. And we're separated from God because Satan, that's his work, is to separate us from God. That's why in Romans 3.10, these harsh words, it's right after that passage in Romans 1. Paul says, that is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All, 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 should I say it again? All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now that's a heavy, right? But we're talking about the gospel here. Before you have good news, you have to give credence to the bad news. And there is an awakening in our culture related to an understanding of this reality 
that we are all guilty of sexual sin and separated from God. So please don't get on your high horse in judgment of anybody who is prone to fall into any type of dimension. We as believers in Christ should have utmost compassion for everyone, no matter what angle, and climb into their world and help understand what they're wrestling with. To not be judgmental. To not be boisterous and in their face. Yes, we desire truth in our world and truth in the inmost being. But make sure when you pray and when you speak the truth, it's seasoned with grace. And grace will never be seasoned in your mouth until you have been broken with compassion for those who are not walking in a pathway to be satisfied fully by God. Number seven then, the Bible teaches us we are all desperately in need of finding joy and reconciliation to God. The reconciliation is what the gospel is all about then, is it not? I find it interesting that King David, King David says this, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Do you know when he wrote Psalm 51? Psalm 51 is his repentant prayer and crying out to God after he was confronted with his sexual immorality, his sexual sin with Bathsheba, committing adultery, and not only committing adultery, but then sending her husband to the front line so that when she got pregnant, it looked like it was maybe his child or something like that, and, and, and he'd come back, and he didn't lay with her out of respect, and so he sent uh, her husband to the front line, and he was killed. There was murder involved, too. It just keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper, one sin sometimes to another, and here he is in this waywardness, this lostness of sexual immorality, sexual deviation, sexual rebellion, because he sinned with Bathsheba, and he cries out, restore to me the joy of your salvation, and the reason this is tender to me is because I've been there, you've been there, you have a friend or a family member who's been there or is there now. There's not the joy that they once had. And you can see them stepping back away because they're going down a path. Sexual sin, otherwise a path. And it brings separation. There's not reconciliation. But when the repentance comes, the repentance is a crying out, God, restore to me the joy of your salvation in my life. We are desperately in need of finding joy and reconciliation with God. And then God's word teaches us in number eight that Jesus has made a way for all of us to experience restoration in a relationship with God. This is the good news, the gospel. Not condemning upholding. Oh, the Spirit can convict of our sin without question. And there is no salvation without repentance, Scripture says. And there's no repentance without conviction. But that's not your job. It's not my job. That's God's job. Pray. May you be seasoned with grace. Point people to truth. Interact. Dialogue with questions. And then ultimately, as you move through some of these truths, there comes the place where an individual says, I need to be reconciled to God. I need to have the joy of that salvation. Romans 5, 6, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his love, his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The gospel of Christ coming living a sinless life, dying on the cross, being raised from the grave. Friends, this is not old, boring news for us as Christians. 
This is the lifeline for people who are disillusioned. They may react. They may not want to hear. They may turn the other way. They may disappear out of your life for years. But you pray. You pray that they would be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ and let the Spirit of Jesus correct and redirect their pathways. It's not your responsibility or mine. Love. Not a wishy-washy kind of love. Sometimes it's tough. But the love is the love that God demonstrated. He laid down his life. Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down life for his friends, Jesus said. May we lay down our lives and may we point them to the life that was laid down for them. Number eight, it was he made a way for all of us to experience restoration. And I trust maybe that if that's not true of your life today, whether you're watching online or you're here in the house, that you would seek out the salvation, the joy of God's salvation to be restored in your life. It's available to all who would come to him. That's why number nine, God's truth teaches us Jesus made a way for all of us to enjoy our ultimate identity with him. Once in that restoration, he begins to realign. He begins to rework as we stay open to him. He will move us into fresh and beautiful places of restoration. 2 Corinthians 5.17, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person, it says in NLT. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us the task of reconciling people to him. It's a new life. A new life changed, transformed. Changed and transformed for our satisfaction and for satisfaction in him and for his glory. God's word teaches us. Jesus made a way for all of us to enjoy our ultimate identity, our identity found in him. I want to read you a story of someone before we go to the last one. This story, true story, a lady by the name of Rosaria Butterfield, she has her PhD, she was a leftist lesbian professor at the University of Syracuse a few years ago and come across this article. She's written books about it. In Christianity Today that said, My Train Wreck Conversion. This was worth hearing her story as a testimony today. And this story is a story about God's truth and how God's truth changed her life. The word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who professed the name commanded my pity and wrath. As a university professor, I tired of students who seemed to believe that quote-unquote knowing Jesus meant knowing little else. Christians in particular were bad readers, always seizing opportunities to insert a Bible verse into a conversation with the same point as a punctuation mark, to end it rather than deepen it. Stupid, pointless, mincing, that's what I thought of Christians and their God Jesus, who in paintings looked as powerful as a Breck shampoo commercial model. As a professor of English and women's studies, on track to become tenured, a tenured radical, and by the way, she helped uh, craft the, at that time uh, uh, Syracuse University statement uh, on um, sexual orientation. I cared about morality at that time. Yes, I did. Justice and compassion, fervent for the worldviews of Freud, Hegel, Marx, and Darwin. I strove to stand with the disempowered. I valued morality. And I probably could have stomached Jesus and his band of warriors if it wasn't for all the other cultural forces buttressed against the Christian right. By the Christian right. My tenure book was published. I used my post to advance at that time the understandable allegiances of the leftist lesbian professor. 
My life was happy, meaningful, and full. My partner and I shared many vital interests, AIDS activism, children's health and literacy, Golden Retriever Rescue, our Unitarian Universalist Church, to name a few. It was hard to argue that my partner and I were anything but good citizens and caregivers. The LGBT community values hospitality and applies it with skill, sacrifice, and integrity. That's true. I began researching, though, the religious right and their politics of hatred against queers like me. To do this, I would need to read the one book that had, in my estimation, gotten so many people off track, the Bible. While on the lookout uh, for some Bible scholar to help me in my research, I launched some of my first attacks against the Christian faith and published some articles. But at that time, I was a broken mess. I did not want to lose everything that I love, but the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world, she would later say. The article generated many rejoiners once it was published. So many that I kept a Xerox box uh, on uh, each side of my desk, one for hate mail and one for fan mail. But one letter I received defied my filing system. It was from the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind inquiring letter. Ken Smith encouraged me to explore the kinds of questions I admire. How did you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know you are right? Do you believe in God? Ken didn't argue with my article. Rather, he asked me to defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. I didn't know how to respond to it, so I threw it away. Later that night, I fished it out of the recycling bin and put it back on my desk where it stared at me for a week, confronting me with the worldview divide that demanded a response. As a postmodern intellectual, I operated with a historical materialist worldview, but Christianity is a supernatural worldview. Ken's letter punctured the integrity of my research project without him even knowing it. With the letter, Ken initiated two years of bringing the church to me, a heathen. Oh, I had seen my share of Bible verses on placards at gay pride marches, that Christians who mocked me on gay pride day were happy that I and everyone I loved were going to hell was clear as the blue sky. That is not what Ken did. He did not mock. He engaged. So when his letter invited me to get together for dinner, I accepted. My motives at the time were straightforward. Surely this would be good research for my next project against Christians. Something else happened. Ken and his wife Floyd and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. They did book exchanges. They talked open about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I'd never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his own sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. And because Ken and Floyd did not invite me to church, I knew it was safe to be friends. I started reading the Bible. I read The Way of Glutton Devours. I read it many times, that first year in multiple translations. At a dinner gathering my partner and I were hosting, my transgender friend cornered me in the kitchen. She put her large hand over mine and said, "Um, This Bible reading is changing you, Rosaria, she warned. With tremors, I whispered, What if it's true? What if Jesus is real? And a risen Lord, what if we're all in trouble? I continued reading the Bible while, the fight, while the fighting the idea that it was inspired. But the Bible got to be bigger inside of me than I. It overflowed into my world. I fought against it with all my might. Then one Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover, lover and an hour later sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. Conspicuous with my butch haircut, I reminded myself that I came to meet God not fit in. The image that came in 
uh, the, the image that came in like waves of me and everyone I loved, suffering in hell, vomited into my consciousness and gripped me in its teeth. I fought with everything I had. I did not want this. I did not ask for this. I counted the cost, and I did not like the math on the other side of the equal sign. But God's promises rolled in like sets of waves into my world. One Lord's Day, Ken preached on John 7, 17, which says this in New King James Version, If anyone wills to do God's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine. This verse exposed the quicksand in which my feet were stuck. I was a thinker. I was paid to read books and write about them. I expected that in all areas of life, understanding came before obedience. And I wanted God to show me on my terms why homosexuality was a sin. I wanted to be the judge, not one being judged. But the verse promised understanding after obedience. I wrestled with this question. Did I really want to understand homosexuality from God's point of view, or did I want to argue with him? I prayed that night that God would give me the willingness to obey before I understood. I prayed long into the unfolding of the day. When I looked into the mirror, I looked the same. But when I looked into my heart through the lens of the Bible, I wondered, am I a lesbian? Or has this all been a case of mistaken identity? If Jesus would split the world asunder, divide moral from soul, could he make my true identity prevail? Who am I? Who will God have me to be? Then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus, open-handed and naked, in this, world of world, in this war of worldviews. Ken was there. Floyd was there. The church that had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphant. And I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved, but the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. I drank tentatively at first, then passionately of the solace of the Holy Spirit. I rested in private peace, then community, and today in the shelter of a covenant family where there's one who now calls me where he now calls me his wife, and I have kids that call me mother. But I have not forgotten the blood Jesus surrendered for this life. And my life lurks in the edges, my former life lurks in the edges of my heart, shining and still like a knife. Her story amidst many stories. You can track it down. She's really got a vibrant ministry today. God can change your identity to way that he intended for it to be. Whole, as he fearlessly and wonderfully made. Satisfied in him. Not without temptation. We are all prone to that. Not without falling sometimes even. In sexual morality and other ways. But God restoring us to himself through the work of Jesus Christ and us being made new creations in him. It's possible, but you have to want God to be the center of the universe and not you. And so finally, God's word teaches us we have all a choice. We can reject and defy God in this life or we can repent and trust God for life. Where are you going to put your faith? In the ever-evolving thoughts and lifestyles of culture or in the everlasting truths and hope of God's word? Where are you going to put your trust? In your imperfect desires or in God's perfect love for you? We all have imperfect desires. We say no. God, help me to say yes to you. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Reject and defy or repent and trust. This morning, you can do that. You can do that. 
He's here to meet you. And if not here this morning, maybe with a friend. Maybe it's just going on the journey like the Rosaria Blumenthal lady did. God is for you. He is not against you. And believers, that's the message we need to carry every day of our lives to others as well. And coming back to Colossians 4, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful, and thankful. And pray, pray that there's open doors. I believe in this day, in this culture, there are wide open doors. Oh my gosh. And sometimes I say it myself, I'm glad I'm not a part of what the future may hold. Beam me up, Jesus. No. I'm here for this day and age to proclaim the message of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the mystery of Christ. And the thing that is about this passage, Paul said this while he was in prison. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that no one may know, so that you may know how to answer everyone. I'm going to ask the ushers if they take their places to receive the Lord's tithes and offerings, but also to receive your Connect cards. On the back of your Connect card is a place to um, make mention of a praise, make mention of a prayer. Maybe in just these few moments, you can jot down a prayer that you have for yourself or someone else. We'll pray over them this week. Maybe it's for a praise of something God's been doing and working in your life. But I'm going to ask them to come forward to receive those cards but I want us to then pray this morning. I want us to pray um, that God would use each one of us in the world in which we live. I am not naive. From week to week, I continually hear about challenges in this whole subject matter, real life challenges concerning sexual orientation, gender identity, gender dysphoria, gender fluidity, however we want to describe all this that's going on. And I want us to be beacons of the gospel of Jesus Christ to point people to the hope of the gospel. Will you stand with me? If this morning you need to pray with someone, feel free to come over here to your right and there'll be someone to pray with you but let's pray together now. Lord Jesus, I pray for your Holy Spirit to take these words, these ten truths of your scriptures and apply them to all of our lives. And Lord, as they apply directly to the area of sexual confusion and deviation of culture today, Lord, may it be a poignant word, specifically spoken. Maybe just one of these ten truths. Apply it to our heart. Lord, give us the words to maybe share with another person who needs the hope of the gospel. But may you send us out here this morning, broken and redeemed people as we are, but yet humble and grace-filled people to uphold your gospel for a world desperately in need of knowing which is the right way. Jesus, you said that you are the way, the truth, and the life. May we go forth as ambassadors of reconciliation this week. Bring us back next week for your hope to fill us to the full, to again be your ambassadors of reconciliation. Amen. You're heading out in your mission field. You're an ambassador. God bless. Thanks for listening.